The first use case that was the original kernel of why Baritone exists is we were just trying to solve, could we analyze several thousand audio and video streams at the same time? And could I index those using AI fast enough with enough accuracy so I could identify and evaluate product or native integrated based ads with the same efficacy as like a interstitial or a commercial break? Yeah. And that was it. That's how success happens. From Entrepreneur Magazine, my name is Robert Tuckman. I self-funded, built up, and eventually sold two businesses to major players in the sports and entertainment industry. And I am fascinated by other entrepreneurial minds and what drives high-achieving people. So on this podcast, we're going to learn what they've learned and what it takes to really succeed. Ryan Steelberg is the co-founder and president of Veritone. It's a NASDAQ publicly traded company leading in enterprise AI software services and solutions. Ryan is a legendary entrepreneur who has founded multiple companies with his brother, Chad. Their first company, AdForce, was started in 1995 and acquired by CMGI four years later in 99, quickly after its IPO. He then served as president and CEO of Brand Affinity Technologies and head of broadcast at Google. He also co-founded DMARC Broadcasting, an advertising company that was also acquired by Google and integrated into their Google Ads platform. On this episode of How Success Happens, I sat down with Ryan to discuss his extensive entrepreneurial experience and how he built Veritone to its current success. I started by asking Ryan about his largest influences growing up, including his relationship with his family. Well, I think it starts with my family. We grew up in a household where my father was a serial entrepreneur before the, the term became in vogue. And, and we went through the, you know, both the great times and the struggles of being an entrepreneur in that family. My father classically was a professional photographer. And his first business was he built up one of the largest film processing companies in the United States. Back in the day where only a few of us at our ages can remember, but used to mail in your film, yep. right? And it would be processed. And so one of the big companies that did that was my father's. Interestingly, brilliant man, not only talented, but you know, he was just a, he was like a savant in so many different areas, which afforded him the ability to go try to do a lot of things. But during the inflation crisis, right, of the 80s, <laughs> right. we're going through kind of a, a very similar period of time for a lot of people that it just, it, it wiped him out. And, and, you know, after a business he built up for 15 plus years and literally was gone in nine months just because of leverage and just tough times. But the bug was always there. My father and my mom, I, we like to say my dad had the entrepreneurial craziness and at times the, the brilliance in many areas and the work ethic came from my mom. So I think just from the earliest time, I remember my brother and I would be sitting around the table building those, those film boxes. It was called Images International and we are at the dinner table and afterwards, putting together the boxes. And obviously, he didn't need our help. But the point was, is that when you're six and seven years old and eight years old, that's how early it started with us. And at the only other you know, so by, by far, my parents are my biggest mentors, ironically, in, in being an entrepreneur. And then I think the, big, the second big variable would be growing up in Newport Beach, California, which you know, like to say is I was born on third base and thought I hit a triple. <laughs> heard that term before. Oh, yeah. <laughs> But on a relative basis, and to be very clear, on a very relative basis, we were the poor kids in the area. 
And, you know, we came from like minister families and struggling entrepreneurs for a while. And, but we grew up with an incredible amount of sophistication and mostly in real estate down here. But so we did, as we went through high school and into our early careers through college, when we started our first business, it was amazing. We did have great mentorship from business leaders in the community. And I think so it was really the combination of parents really giving us the support and saying, go for it. And as well as good mentorship in the, the local community, which was kind of the springboard for us. You know, you were a young guy at the time. I'm not sure how old, but take me, what was that feeling like when you saw that business that your father put so much time, effort into, and then all of a sudden it's wiped out? Well, I mean, when they're small businesses, there's not a delineation. And we all try as entrepreneurs to do that, but there is no church and state between business and at home. And so I think the hardest thing for us was my father, I think, struggled like many of us do to keep work at the office. Now we're in a remote environment. (laughs) Imagine how hard it is now. So I think that was by far the hardest thing is just going through our impressionable adolescent years earlier on and having just to deal with my father almost starting over. Let's say, I mean, somebody basically went from building up and scaling that business to then having to go back to school to get a series C and start working at Merrill Lynch. Right. And and you're doing that in your forties is, but that's the man, right? Just don't waste too much time. Get back on it. They obviously had the aptitude to do that, but I think it was just, you know, number one, appreciating the fact of how hard business really is appreciating the fact that my brother and I have always had each other, right. Where my father was really flying solo and just being perseverance. I mean, you, you heard it probably heard 8 million interviews you've done, but if there's, I mean, if there's one common thread, you better have thick skin and a short memory and don't ever give up. And I think that that was kind of impressed upon us through those trying times. Yeah. Well, you hit it on the head out of the 150 interviews I've done with incredibly successful entrepreneurs, what I've realized it comes down to, to a degree, obviously there's different very variations of variables, but it's perseverance. It's being able to pick yourself off the mat. Did you get that? Obviously from your father, I love that story. Having to like do that in your forties and change. I mean, that so hard. And it sounds like also you got that a little bit from your mother as well. Cause you said, she's the one, she's really the work ethic, the drive. Is that true? hundred percent. And my, my mother still, I feel her anxiety. And the joke was you're talking about it's 9am. She's, I still feel her presence and saying, what are you doing right now? Are you working? Are you being productive? So I, I, she's awesome. But no, she was, we, you know, Chad and I both played sports. Sports were a very critical part of our life growing up. So we were, I would say we were good high school athletes. Let's say <laughs> we were good enough that it was important to our family and having that structure. My mom was, you know, I don't, I don't think I ever, I don't care if I stayed out late maybe once or twice, but my mother never let me get off course like ever. And that's kind of that perfect combination, right? Um, but I, but you clear, I still feel her presence every day. I speak to her almost every single day. Yeah. But even when I'm not speaking to my mom, I, I feel her presence and she's really wondering what I've done productive today. <laughs> I, I love that. Even at this stage, it, it's, so, it's so incredible that how it just sticks with you, right? From your parents and just those lessons and every day you still hear the voice of, you know, what are you doing? And it sounds like that for you has been a big driver where she has 
for you to get over the hump, to pick yourself off the mat, to become super successful? hundred percent. I'm extremely thankful for my parents. They still live in the local community with Chad and I here in, in Orange County. And you know we're blessed beyond belief because of that. Yeah. I want to talk about just starting out because when you did start out, I'm, I'm, I'm curious how you got into this. And, and of course, we'll get to Veritone and, and a lot of other successes you've had. But you know, when you were first starting out, I assume in the early 90s, and you got right away, it seems like, went into the ad tech AI space, which was just emerging for a lot of our younger listeners who don't don't go back that far. What was that like and why did you choose that path? Well, back to living in Orange County. So the business that we initially started, so Chad was after his senior year at USC and I was at, it was the summertime after my sophomore year at UCLA. Oh, big. yeah, so so it was a long time ago, but the business actually started as the, we were we believe we were the first people to port multiple listing service data to the World Wide Web. So for those who don't know it, the MLS data, right? Where you get the real estate listings. So the first business we actually started was the first Twilio, right? If you will, um, yeah. or whatever, Twilio and that, that, all those, the real estate listing ones. The reason we did that was, well, one, we, we I forgot to mention that another trend in my family was we had computers from the earliest memory I ever had. My father was a simple coder back in the day. And, and we had compact computers that, you know, you take off the front <laughs> back in the early day. So that, so you, you don't take those for granted. Nobody yeah. had them. So that it was kind of in our DNA from a very early age. But my mom at the time was working as a real estate agent at Prudential California Realty. I'm sorry, Cole Banker. And it was just kind of a, an idea of like, could we, with this new graphical interface of the World Wide Web, could we port these these listings from this archaic legacy system to this this graphical interface of the web, and that's what we did. And it was just a part time thing. We were just we helped we helped my mom's local office build a website, and and then obviously we wrote the the coding and the scripting to to port a lot of the MLS data. But to be clear, nobody the only nobody had even modems back then, right? <laughs> right. And ironically, the only people who had modems were real estate agents because they were like using 14 baud dial-up modems to get into the MLS system. They weren't using it to get into the World Wide Web. So it literally, it was the most archaic. We, we rented out an office that my dad helped us find and we bought and leased a bank of scanners because n- nobody could scan or email them the photos. So back to mail, we started getting hundreds and then thousands of people mailing in photos of their houses and we would be building <laughs> websites for each one of the listings. So that we could talk about that one forever, but that was the, the, so the business that we started to create a business plan was really that. And it was a terrible name. It was the global real estate registry. (laughs) (laughs) And it was the global real estate registry. But through that, our business model was we used to charge $1 per listing per month, right? To host it, present it. And then at scale, you know, we started signing up everybody. So within like three and a half months, we signed up like every single real estate company in America, it seemed like. We had tens of thousands of photos being sent in. So that was the primary business. But then we, had, we started to get so many inbound calls from listing agents, brokerage houses. They all started asking us, could they advertise on our websites? And, and this, was the big, you know, so, you know, this was the big breakthrough where it kind of changed the trajectory of our careers forever, was how could we serve ads on distributed third-party internet sites, not just serving ads from a server side to my own website, 
but how could I do it from a distributed perspective? I'll call a tag-based server. So we had a tiny little segment of our business plan that was like this big that was called codename AdForce. So during this process, my parents started to get a bunch of calls from VCs in the Valley, right? We never knew what venture capital was. And we had um, Hummer Winblad and some of the big names of the past. And they came down and, and they met with our parents. They met with Chad and I. And of the VCs that reached out, Hummer Winblad offered no strings attached to, do a, to introduce us to 30 plus VCs in the Valley. And to their word and credit, they did. And back then we were shopping global real estate registry. I think we got like 15 term sheets. It's amazing. And, and the terms were absolutely terrible. But <laughs> No surprise. When you're 21 years old, you think it's like the greatest thing since sliced bread. <laughs> but here's what's interesting. After all that exercise, Hummer Winblog came back and said, tell you what, we'll fund you guys. If your parents are okay, that you know, you guys, you know, taking some time off of going back to UCLA in school, but we're interested in funding this, this part of your business called your ad force. We really think you guys are onto something there. And so I'm not going to be, that's our first and last great experience for working with VCs. <laughs> <laughs> but no, they were brilliant. Hummer, uh, John, John Hummer and, and that team were brilliant. Um, Ann Winblad obviously was, you know, I think fiance of Bill Gates for a while. So that's it. So they helped, they, we took the deal. Um, we deferred going back to school and we sold off the real estate assets quickly and we became AdForce. And that, and that, and we had, we think at that time, this is 1993. Yeah. Geez. Um, early 1994. And we think at that time, we obviously became friends with, oh my gosh, I'm blanking on his name, but Kevin O'Connor. Yeah, Double. of course. And you know, the, and so we think, we think we both kind of came, we came becoming friends later that we both ideated the tag based ad server like within an aperture of like six months of each other, right? Yeah. And, and it was just this fun, crazy race and experience from... And it was a whirlwind. When you're 21, it just went from like zero to 100. Unreal. Over the last over the next couple of years. But yeah, that's the crazy backstory of ad tech. It had nothing to do with ad tech. Orange County, the influence of real estate was the... Yeah. Ultimate. You're about 25 years too early for like Zillow or street or whatever, but, yeah. uh, you did, you did quite well, regardless. <laughs> you talk about Chad, Chad's your brother. How was that relate growing up? Were you guys really super close or did, you know, he was, you know, he was two and a half years, my senior. So I'm a freshman and he's a senior. Chad is my best friend. He's my biggest supporter. It's kind of, it's, you know, it's, it's, it, there's one just crazy thing that we've been able to make work through. Thankfully we've had, I guess, more successes than failures. So, yeah. but, but I think we've, we've, even through our failures, we've made it through it, but, he, but he, it's been dynamic. You know, he's always been the, the, the technical lead and I've always been the sales marketing business. And, and it's, and we, you know, I've been CEO a couple of times. He's been CEO a few times and, you know, and, and it's just, it's worked. But again, we were we were far enough in age where we never really directly competed. Mm. Uh, I think the only time we I started was like when I was playing volleyball and I was pretty good. And I started to play up right when the playoffs came, and he was and his team was like the superstar players, and that was it. But it was never it was never. Um, I don't think I can't even remember. Maybe one time I made fun of his girlfriend one time, but <laughs> but I, I can't even remember a time when there was you know any. I would say chivalry, sibling rivalry that crossed over to something that wasn't healthy, but that's yeah, it's, that's it's pretty awesome. 
it sounds like an incredible partnership and one that sound sounds like it was grounded in the way you were raised by your, your, your parents. Let's, I want to skip ahead just with time and you've done incredible things, like you said, with ad force and starting at 21 and, but let's talk about Veritone, the business it's a NASDAQ a publicly traded company now. And I want to ask you, how that or or how you thought of the idea and started uh, obviously starting it with your brother, how it all came about. Yep. So through the career after AdForce, you know, we were at Google for a while. We sold the business to them. And let's just say that through our ad tech career, we really earned our triple PhDs in two areas. One was by default, all we dealt with was large amounts of data, right? When you're you know trying to figure out which ad to serve to the right person at the right time. And you're doing it, you know, 100 billion ads a day. You become very good at dealing with large data sets. Number one. Number two is acting upon that data. So you're ingesting data. I very quickly have to analyze it, make a decision, and get something back out the door right brilliantly fast. Back in the you know big transition, going from like our own data centers of the past to leveraging AWS now, et cetera, et cetera. But that so I think that was one thread. The second thing was we saw we started to see the cracks in display based ads the problems years ago. And it was really this device, right? When, when, yep. the, screen, when the screen oh. real estate just disappeared and people started consuming, frankly, what you and I are doing, just the content. With the opportunity of serving interstitial ads or banner ads around all the content, it was under a lot of pressure. The human, the, 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 so people were being, they went from seeing, the average uh, US consumer went from seeing about 300 ads per day to over 3,000 ads per day like within a period of like six years. So the display-based ad model was under pressure. So during our time at the end of our, our tenure with Google, Chad and I really became obsessed with product placement and native-based advertising, embedding con- you know, ads into the programming itself, whether it's yeah. you doing a, a host-read live read sure. um, for the beginning of this podcast or logos in the background at a sporting event. And because we just felt that there was going to be a fight for the, the attention of the of the consumer, the audience, A and B, we have a real estate problem, right? I can't serve ads around everywhere. So we started really, uh, we made a few investments into legacy companies in the space. So ultimately, fast forward is the first use case that, that was the original kernel of why Veritone exists is we were just trying to solve, could we analyze several thousand audio and video streams at the same time? And could I index those using AI fast enough with enough accuracy so I could identify and evaluate product or native integrated based ads with the same efficacy as like a interstitial or a commercial break? Yeah. And that was it. It was just, it was one, it was a very ad tech focused thing. We even had one brand. It was LifeLock and it was the national syndicated host, host Rush Limbaugh, right? <laughs> yeah. Who was like yep. a child. He was the main endorser of LifeLock. And we wanted, and but he had the most organic host. I mean, he would start off talking about a trip going to Mexico, and somehow it would turn into right um, credit card fraud protection, right? <laughs> and and we want to try to figure out could we do that? It was incredibly effective advertising, as amazing. You know, but could we track it? So that was it. So so very so very quickly we were like, wow, this could be a lot more than just find trying to find one ad. So very quickly we we're like, just open up the aperture. What if I could look at any form of unstructured? data, our audio videos? Could I start finding faces fast? Could I start? So I think that's just where it became a business, not just an individual solution. And that's where 2014, 2015 came along. We incorporated Veritone. And Veritone means truth in the signal. So the signal obviously is lots of data, 
messy, unorganized, unstructured, very Veritas. So it's truth in the yeah. signal. And that's and thankfully the brand still holds true today because that's basically all we do. It is sift through lots of data, try to uncover things, make predictions and deliver answers. I love it. More from our guests, but first a word from our sponsors. Turning off work can mean turning on everything else in your life. Whether you're a busy parent, juggling your kids' activities, or trying to plan a wedding, work doesn't stop when you log off for the day. That's why Notion makes it easy to toggle between your work and personal to-dos. Notion is an all-in-one team collaboration tool that combines note-taking, document sharing, wikis, project management, and more into one space that's simple, powerful, and beautifully designed. Notion's customizable workplace can be tailored to realize any workplace OKRs or major life events. And if that wasn't enough, Notion also has a worldwide network of millions of users constantly creating templates, tutorials, and inspiration. It's a tool that's getting better all the time. And while Notion will make you more efficient and productive at work, what really sets Notion apart is that it seamlessly transitions from a workplace power tool into a game changer for your personal life. If you're dreaming, working, planning, or building at work or at home, Notion is the collaboration tool that you need. You can get started for free at Notion.com. That's Notion.com to start today for free. That's Notion.com to take the first step toward organized, productive work and life today. And our next sponsor, are you a small business owner? Did you know that Visa's online small business hub has tools, discounts, and resources to help you run your business? So whether you're a business beginner or an entrepreneurial expert, find the solutions, tools, and tips you need to help take your business to the next level. Plus, if you have a Visa business credit or debit card, you can get access to cardholder benefits like Visa Savings Edge, a savings program which can help you save on everyday business expenses like office essentials, travel, and more. When you enroll your Visa business card in Visa Savings Edge, you'll have access to valuable offers which can help turn qualifying business purchases made with your enrolled Visa business card into savings for your business. Learn more at visa.com slash small business hub. Once again, that's visa.com slash small business hub. Visa, a network working for everyone. And we're back. So starting it up, realizing you have something here with all businesses, as we know, there's challenges. Was there a time at the beginning where you were questioning yourself at all or did, did things? Um, it was t- Yeah, this one. Well, I think part when you've had success a few times, you know, it's hard to check yourself. Right. I'd like to say is one thing as Chad and I have worked together closely over the years is you can be an echo chamber, the reinforcing dynamic. And you don't often get challenged as much, right? Or no's, you know, you don't get a lot as many no's, or you can overrule no's very quickly. And I think that so I think our struggle early on with Baritone is we didn't want to have to build any specific end solutions. Right. For example, I didn't want to build and say, I'm gonna find all logos for ESPN, one of our clients. We wanted to build the, the platform, be more like Twilio and say, here's our APIs. Could you go build the solutions on our stack, right? Right. And 
I think that was a, a struggle for us. Usually, Chad and I, you know, there are products that really took off. We were we were very point solution. Like it's an ad server, it does this. Coming up with a general framework, right? AIware that's generic. It was challenging. Companies weren't ready to staff a data science team and start building upon it. So we were early on the platform sale of AI. And I think for we so we struggled for a couple of years. And I think really what got us through it is we used our own platform to go build several bespoke applications that leverage our AI. So meaning they were tangible. I could, okay, I feel I built something for ESPN. They don't they no longer have to have all those interns to organize all their content. We're going to help them create a you know an index for their content. So it, it just just you just got to go back to understanding what made you successful in the first place is like listen people are not just ready to jump in they're not looking for problems they're looking for solutions so we had to go i would say we had to shift from a platform business to kind of an application business for a few years and that's really where we started generating revenue and momentum and ironically now we're going back to since like once you have all of iHeartMedia as a client they want to do all these bigger things and so now a lot of those point solution application customers are now becoming enterprise class customers. So I think that was a challenge for us and frankly, our lack of experience at times of, of understanding the true platform sale versus a more bespoke application sale. That makes sense. Absolutely. You want to give us a little bit of a sneak peek into what's happening now in Dead Baritone and, and things that you are working on? We're really, once we we have about, you know, we have so many great, and I'll just speak to the media and entertainment segment um, first, and we'll touch a little bit on the government stuff. But we have such a great roster of customers in the in the media and entertainment spot that it affords us the ability now to go look at. Listen, we're not just building a search engine of content anymore. Now, a lot of the data that we're ingesting is becoming the training data to do next generation Web three stuff. So, synthetic voice and metaverse, I'll say, related opportunities is something that we're heavily investing in and really with initial focus on synthetic voice, I'll call the commercial or legitimate side of deep fakes. Um, we think it's a massive big opportunity. We think that every individual is going to, just like your name and likeness, right, is how you market yourself and you make money. We think every single individual is going to have ownership of their voice, whether it's your real voice or your synthetic voice, your face, your avatar. So that's it. It's just, and we're starting to see um, some really amazing things of of creating new content that you've never seen before using right synthetic voices and avatars or just more utility-based transformations, right? So you don't have to go in the studio to recut an ad 15,000 times. I can automate that whole thing for you. So I think that, you know, I, I think for our media and entertainment side is really now taking it to the next level, I'll call, you know, of, of hyper-realistic synthetic content derivatives of these amazing works and then recreating old iconic voices, right? Bringing Vince Scully, right? Back and although he's retired, bringing some of these iconic voices that we all grew up with um, yeah. to, to the forefront again. So that's you know that's one big area. And then I think we've really started to get build momentum in what we're doing with the Department of Justice and the DoD. A lot of the same things. It's they have tons and tons of unstructured data. They have a million use cases that I, we would take us three hours to go through on this call. But just very similar is how do we make it make our government more efficient? and more competitive, frankly, not just you doing the mundane and I'll say investigations, but we got some big existential you know, issues as a nation. And, you know, we're, as, at least from an AI perspective, a lot of our great tech is in private companies, yeah. not in our government. So we're, we're, you know, we're thrilled and there's definitely some national pride that, that we get and take by, 
you know, now starting to work with these government agencies to try to, again, if it ultimately goes into supporting war fighting, I hope not. At least we're there. But at least making the legal process in the United States be much more efficient. You know, that we're, we're thrilled and we're, we're thankful to be a, a tier one vendor now of a lot of those agencies. Uh, it's incredible. And it's awesome too. just like you said, from a national pride, just being able to help the government, as you see in a lot of other countries, especially that we know, you know, the government's very just focused on a lot of that and it's not private companies. So I'm sure to be able to assist the United States of America for you and coming from Newport, that's got to be an incredible feeling. Yeah, it's great. I mean, it's it's a challenge going from selling in the commercial space to <laughs> government contracting. Woo. Uh, talk, about, talk about a whole different world. But no, it's at the end of the day, once you find the contract and the, the, the I'd say the, the maze to get a deal done, you're right. It's, it's exciting. And sadly, they need it bad. Right. You're going to stitch just it's it's very hard for our government to get great technology in there. I think the bureaucracies that help protect the institution on the flip side help curtail a lot of the, the, the innovation quotient a lot. And so that's kind of the, the biggest struggle we're dealing with is just how do we get our tech into these groups faster and more efficiently? Right. Yeah. That's interesting. I can only imagine the procurement process uh, working with with the government. But tell me more from a personal standpoint. Obviously, you said you grew up playing sports. And where do your personal passions lie? And and how does that define you, would you say, as a person? We come from a a very faith-based family. My grandfather on my dad's side, we like to say my dad was the black sheep. He definitely was not the black sheep. But (laughs) according to the family, they were assemblies of God ministers. My grandfather and my great-grandfather, he was actually the superintendent, kind of like the CEO of Assemblies of God. So you know, the faith has always been part of our, our DNA. And it's challenging in the world we're living in and running a public company and, and obviously trying to be moderate and open-minded and stuff. It's just, it's, you know, it's the world's changing around you yeah. and trying to be a leader in, in this ever-changing world and being able to be in, in touch and in tune with your diverse, you know, with your diverse employee base and colleagues. It's just been, I think my, my source of faith has been bedrock for our family, uh, for stability. But at the same time, it's, it's something that, you know, it's just my eyes are, I'm forced to listen to new ideas all the time. Um, so I think that's just, so I think, you know, that's a piece of our DNA that I didn't mention earlier, that it's kind of a, a common thread throughout our family and my extended um, co- you know, cousins and aunts and uncles and all that stuff. So it's just a combination of that with sports and the family. We've made our world, we've made, been able to keep our world small. Let's try to say it that. There's a lot of noise out there, but, you know, Chad and I still live within three miles of where we grew up. Right. You know, it, it, and I just, the world's complex. And when you're making good money, when you're in your early 20s and, you know, there's a lot of temptation and there's so many easy, we, you know, you and I both have countless stories of these brilliant people that have, you know, just succumbed oh. to different aspects of life. And, you know, we're still, you know, both happily married. I just had my 20th anniversary, you know, uh, oh, congrats. December. Yep. And chats I'm still married. We, and, and we're so blessed about that, you know? So I, at times I, you know, I just, I, I'm, I'm very thankful for where we are. Uh, we still have crazy competitive energy to do it. You know, I, I'm 48 years old right now and I'm, I can't believe it. Like I just had my, <laughs> I just had my 30th high school reunion this it's past week. Right? And I'm like, <laughs> okay, at some point you're getting old. And I'm like, ah, oh. but now I just, I think that, you know, that that's who, that's who we are. And 
I think, you know, nurture and nature, and it's a combination. And, and I think it's just, you know, it's, it's who molds you. And, um, but it doesn't change, you know, it's like all people like, you know, as you, as you know, it's the new people you meet in your life, your wife, your kids, you still change as an individual, right? For good and bad. And I think it's just, it's a journey, but I would like to say at least wherever that journey takes us, having a solid grounding in yourself and your faith and whatever your grounding needs to be, I think that's just mission critical. Particularly in the world we're living in today right now, which is pretty scary. And especially with the success you both have seen and keeping grounded and just because like you said, the people we've met or talked to and a lot of times you just see major issues, you know, that when you're not grounded, even if you've had this incredible success and and it's hard because each day you got to live with that and like you said when you're a few miles within parent your brother keeping your world small i mean it's just such a great reminder business is business and it's great and it affords you opportunity you're still competitive but the whole other side of life and family it just seems like it's worked so well for you to combine both of them and would you say that that's helped you develop a great culture at Veritone? I think 100%. Chad and Ryan fit kind of two roles. You know, I'm definitely more of the nurturing mother hen, I would say, on a relative <laughs> basis. And he's more of the hammer, right? And so you need both. I mean, it's, yeah. and I don't think that's ever really changed, um, it, but it has. I, I think we're not a huge company where, you know, we're 700 people right now, which is, you know, a, it's a large enough base, it's, you know, where it's, it's remote. But it's, you know, it's still, it's an open door policy. Walking in without bias or prejudice, even with a new employee, or candidly them coming into baritone and potentially having an opinion of me, that's the one thing that being remote is challenging where, yeah. you know, I feel, give me five minutes. You and I can walk in with radically different ideas in every aspect of life. And, and I'm confident that we will, you know, come to find middle ground and have a great conversation. It's hard to do that remote. And yeah. I think that's some of the things that, that we're you know, still learning as management is trying to keep that culture and that sense of community, sense of diversity and all those things and really reinforce it. It's just, it's challenging doing it through a Zoom call and distributing documents versus seeing each other in person. Yeah. I asked that question. Now I don't have to, you just answered it to over the past two years, just for every CEO or founder I've had on these large companies like yourself. And how do you continue to build culture? What's new office look like? And none of them, no one has the answer, you know, because no one knows, but they're trying, everyone's trying to do different things. And that's one of the things that I've seen you have, have been able to do. And just knowing some of the people who work for you and the Bart Roselli's of the world, and I mean, who are just super incredible thought leaders. And I've seen a lot of other folks at Veritone over the years. So it, you have to be doing something right, but it must be so difficult without the just the quick five minute like conversation in the hallway or, yeah. or somewhere you might be. You know, I think we call them communities. A lot of companies do it. I think empowering your employees to have a voice, right, in these different areas. Because again, we, we we can't do it all by ourselves. It's not you there I think the the days of the Steve Job, Ivory Tower, one screen <laughs> on the mountain, like it just it's it's gone. Right. And and as we're moving more into web three, community is real. So I think empowering your staff to have a, a voice to own, I mean, and not just have a voice, but to own things, right? And so we call them very communities. And 
whether it's, you know, I'll say very faith, right? And we have a, a team that's made up. It's not run by management. It's completely yeah. run by employee base. And we have dozens of these different programs. One of them I think is critical is we call very DNA. And this is a, a cross-functional team of colleagues across that have a complete open door confidential um, form with me. And it's a fine line because we're a public company. So we try to go, but we go into really deep, sometimes very challenging topics. You know, we went through Black Lives Matter as a company, right? We all did. We're going through some of these existential things all at the same time. Yeah. And you're like, oh my gosh, how do we get through this? So I think just the, thankfully with the improvements of speed and bandwidth and compute and all that, at least this Zoom call is tolerable. And at least so versus, can you imagine just this, this whole phenomenon of COVID and stuff hitting 10 years ago? I, it would, that, it'd be, we'd be going back in the dark ages. Right? I, I don't, I always, you know, it's so funny you bring that up because I always said like, just what if this had happened six years ago yeah. or seven, like what would have happened? Like, I don't know. I can't imagine. I mean, bandwidth meetings would have been limited to five people max, maybe. I mean, like it was just, it would have been, you know, who knows? I mean, the joke is maybe, maybe the world just all needs a break, right? <laughs> <That's> <laughs> right. We, maybe we just all need to unplug for a while, right? And I, 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 you know, you and I both know deep down, I, I bet we all could do and be well served if we all unplugged at the same time. It is true. For a couple of weeks. Because I mean, it's, you know, that's the other challenge is that there's your, your working day is 24 hours now. It just is. It's not, it's just, and it is for everybody. And that's, you know, you're seeing burnout and all these different things. And it's just, I like, I think if you're well organized, disciplined individual, I love the open clock, right? Yeah. Like if I was an employee, I'm like, okay, great. I'm going to work out. I mean, it's, I mean, I will always perform and get my stuff done, but I, you know, I love not having to say, okay, here's my, yeah, I got eight to six and what yeah. can I do in terms of structures and fit all that stuff in. But you know, it's just, it's, it's a crazy business and social experiment. We're all dealing with in real time together. It's crazy. Before I let you go, I want to ask you, is there a motivational quote that drives you or just you live by? Let's hear it. Well, my mom's going to get mad because I'm not going to quote a Bible verse, but um, <laughs> no, it's actually one I use a lot and it's optimism is a force multiplier and that's Colin Powell. And I believe that core. I mean, if you're walking in, if you don't have confidence in yourself and your team that you are going to be successful, you're not going to be successful. And I just think you could have a clear single mission with confidence and optimism that you're going to achieve that mission in all likelihood. Let's just say it this way. You got a better chance that you are going to be successful if, if right with that optimism. So that's definitely one quote and a mantra that I live by. I love it. Well, Brian, thanks so much for coming on How Success Happens. Really appreciate it. Incredible story. You've built incredible businesses and the one you're running now is on to incredible things and from helping the government to just some of the things you're working on, we're going to need. So thank you. It was great to be here again. Thank you. And that's our episode. If you like what you heard, please subscribe to How Success Happens wherever you get your podcasts. We come out with a new episode every Wednesday morning, and you don't want to miss it. And if you like to share, please feel free to pass along the show to an entrepreneur friend who could use a boost, and I could always use the subscribers. And do you have ideas for guests? I always love to hear about great entrepreneurs. If you know anyone, shoot me an email at hsh at entrepreneur.com or on Twitter at Robert Tuckman, that's R-O-B-E-R-T-T-U-C-H-M-A-N, or even send me a message on LinkedIn. How Success Happens is a production of Entrepreneur Media. 
Be sure to visit entrepreneur.com for insight on building your business or even better yet, subscribe to our magazine. No joke, I found my first job after reading about a company in Entrepreneur Magazine back in the 1990s. It's always been my absolute favorite magazine for entrepreneurs. Thanks for listening and spending some time with me today. Until next time, my name is Robert Tuckman, just a fellow entrepreneur and your host. See you soon.